If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And today on the show, I have the pleasure of chatting with my friend, Jason Freeman. Jason is the co-founder and co-CEO of Fusion Projects, the maker of Four Loco, one of the most controversial and successful beverages of the past two decades. Starting with a big idea, passion, and some capital from a small business administration loan, Fusion Projects has grown into a global business of more than 200 employees. The company has sold over a billion dollars in alcoholic products during its short history, and it's expanded sales to 30 countries worldwide. All of this as an independent company without raising any outside investment capital. Jason is also an investor and partner in Swish Beverages, makers of the wildly successful White Girl Rosé and Not Your Father's Root Beer. And he joined us to talk about the importance of having skin in the game, how to lose your ego, and the value that comes with staying true to your brand. So please enjoy my conversation with Jason Freeman. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How's it going out there? How's your uh, pandemic sheltering in place treating you? Uh, it's it's very interesting. We just moved into a brand new office at the end of January, so I'm self-quarantined here by myself. It's just nice to get out of the house and come to the office every once in a while. Totally. And you know, we met, I guess, over a year ago now. I couldn't believe the story that you told me about how you and your buddies built and grew for Loco and into pull some projects. And I'm just really excited that you joined us for the podcast. Happy to be here. Are you from Chicago or did you end up in Chicago? No, I ended up in Chicago. Uh, I'm actually was born in Minneapolis, um, St. Paul, Minneapolis area. Yeah. And we moved around a little bit as a kid, Jersey, New York. And then I ended up going to the Ohio State University to play hockey. And that's where I met my, my current business partner and uh, our other partner that was with us in the beginning, and then moved to Chicago after finishing school. 
And you were in banking, correct? Yeah, I started in banking. You know, you look at careers that you can have from a business degree and everyone wants to be an investment banker or work for a bank because you think mm-hmm. you can make a lot of money. But I quickly learned that wearing a suit every day was definitely not for me. And what, what kind of banking were you doing? You know, it was in the investment banking side. Uh, we did like foreign currency stuff and different M&A transactions. I was at the bank for about a year and a half in their management development program. I mean, it was right about the time that, that we started Fusion Projects. And were you guys all still close? Of course, yeah. And would you hang? Like, were you like kicking it and like talking about startup ideas or like how exactly did this concept come to be? Yeah, so um, we had always been friends in college. You know, I, I always knew that I would start something. I didn't know what it would be. And it just ended up being alcohol, which I think is a, is a great industry to be in, a lot of fun. And so when we got out of college, this is right about the rise of Red Bull and Vodka. And our other partner, Chris, was working as a sales rep for a vodka company. And the first idea was to start a vodka. And we looked at all the vodkas out there. And if you go to any liquor store now, you can see there's hundreds. We realized that we probably didn't have a, a chance to do it. But all of our friends, including us, were drinking Red Bull vodka. We thought, hey, if we mix these two things together and we sell it as as a package, you know, our friends and, and us, we would love to drink this. And we drink it every weekend. It would make it a lot easier. It just seemed like an aha moment. You know, we knew nothing really about the industry. Thank God for Google. We found, you know, how to make a formula, where to make it, how to do distribution. And we thought if we could sell a million dollars in product, like we had made it. And this is 2005. So this concept was still super novel, this idea of like a caffeinated beer, basically. Yeah. So there's different words for it. It's like flavored malt beverage or progressive adult beverage. But, you know, most of them are malt based, like whether it's a seltzer whether it's Twisted Tea or whether it's Four Loco, these are all like beer-based malt products. And our idea was, the first idea wasn't you know solely Red Bull and Vodka. We had an idea to put Wormwood in it or some other ingredients. We thought people would care about Wormwood, but nobody cared at all. I and mean, the product was, was a complete failure. Our first product was a complete failure. I think we purchased more back from the stores than we actually sold. Oh, man. And how much was that initial investment that you guys just kind of burnt? Well, you know, this is a time, you know, we got, uh, I had some savings, we had some family and friends put some money in, you know, this is a time where you could, right before the financial crisis, where you could get loans, we got an SBA loan for $250,000. And we set off and figured out how to do it. We didn't really, weren't really great at raising money. We tried, we didn't really know how to do it. People looked at us as kids. So we started opening up credit cards and cash advancing money. No way. Yeah. I mean, we would, we would open credit cards, cash advance just to make payroll. And we did this and did this until we couldn't, until we couldn't open up any more credit cards or refinance any more homes. You're leveraging everything to make this thing work. So you had conviction, even though yes. the first you know batch didn't sell and four didn't sell, right. you must've had some positive feedback from the marketplace that was like encouraging you to bet the farm on this. What was that? Yeah. So I think, I think there's a little piece of a nugget here that is a little different than today. Cause I, I do talk to a lot of entrepreneurs today, especially in, in my industry, I'm, I'm an investor, but, uh, I'm, you know, I also take a call from, from pretty much any kind of budding entrepreneur. Cause I know how hard it is to get started and nobody would take my calls, but the three of us, when we started, we were doing everything and we didn't raise a lot of money. You know, I see these companies now raising 10, 20, 30 million dollars in Series A, and I think we would have spent it really stupidly. But us not having the funds and bootstrapping made us go out there and do the work. 
we were totally understanding, you know, cost of goods sold and purchasing. And so being out in the market and talking to consumers and actually being in the stores where the product is sold, we started to understand the industry and really got a crash course on what was working. And so our next iteration was that we were in the wrong size can, we had the wrong price. And what we saw was the emergence of craft beer and that higher ABV products were starting to become more popular and people were actually, you know, seeking these out. And ABV, does that mean higher alcohol content? Yes, it's a higher alcohol content. Yeah. So what we saw was that crafts were coming in at 8 10% alcohol and that you know they were selling very, very well. And so we thought, as we look at this as an iteration prototype for kind of phase two of the product, you know, we raised the alcohol percentage and we made it, made it in a bigger can, which was where a majority of products like, like this were selling. And so as soon as that happened, we saw an immediate increase in sales. You know, not the big jump, but we saw it where now there was there was a little bit of buzz around the product that the product was viable and that there was something there. And as I understand it, it's brutal. Like it's it's warfare, like shelf by shelf, venue by venue. Was that the case then in 2005, 2006 also? Like you guys were literally going into like the individual bodegas and checking and see like, is it eye level? Can you find the product? Like how how deep down the rabbit hole did you have to go? Yeah, I mean that was every day. And we were not in, you know, the most desirable places either. You know, we were we were there and it was guerrilla warfare. And I think that's where we really developed the ethos for our sales team. I mean, still today we're known as a company that battles on the ground. You know, we support our distributors and retailers and we have people there that, you know, build on what, you know, we started many years ago. But it really is going into an independently owned store, working with them moving cans around, being in the back shelf to make sure you have the best shelf position, the best pricing. And so you learn a lot on the fly, but it's still like that. And, you know, when we started an average distributor, let's say in Los Angeles, maybe had, you know, one to 2000 products today, they average like 10 to 15,000 different SKUs. So it's a lot harder today than it was then, but it's still, you know, it's even more ultra competitive because there's a limited amount of space and a lot of products that want that space. I want to continue down the timeline of the story, but like, I think it's important for the listeners to know, like today, this is a nine figure business. This is a very, very sizable enterprise. And, you know, it's funny is like when, you know, you recall the media that we consumed on Four Loco, it was like the rise and fall of Four Loco. But what didn't get covered is the fact that it's now like a category killer and you guys are a huge business, a huge global business. You're in over 40 countries. So why did it pop? Obviously, you guys have a good sensibility of the marketplace. You worked your ass off. You went and did all the unsexy hard work and you know, were in every independent store. And, but like, tell us about what, what happened. Because clearly, it became like an absolute phenomenon. Well, I think there's, there's a lot of different things that happen. And timing is also super important for any brand and any product. It was different. And what you had for years and years and years was just not very good innovation from the big companies. They used the same playbooks, the same products, the same brands. They did big billboards outside. They did big television commercials at the Super Bowl. And we obviously couldn't afford these things, right? And timing, as I said, was perfect. We were one of the first brands on Facebook. Social media is just emerging at this time and allowed you to get to consumers. And again, this is before this is before the timeline and the algorithms and all that crap, right? Like, you know, if you posted something, usually most people saw it that was either following you. So we built a pretty big following on social media. Um, and then, you know, what happened was the brand just started to become more popular, more people 
We're starting to drink it. We started increasing distribution everywhere. I remember one day I, I started getting you know a whole bunch of text messages and these rappers in Cleveland made this song about Four Loco. Who? Which rappers? It was the Goo-Wop Gang, I think it, it was called. Oh, it was called... the Goo-Wop Gang, of yeah. course. <laughs> uh, but this became, it was a YouTube sensation hit. Millions awesome. and millions of people watched this, right? And so now every rapper wants Four Loco in their song. And it just became this like viral hit sensation, which was great at the time, but also brought a lot of attention, probably unwanted attention as well as wanted attention. Sure. Cause it had like a mythical quality to the way people yes. would talk about it. I imagine at first when you were like seeing that sort of, you know, myth getting created, you guys were like, wow, like we've hit, you know, a cultural vein. And then, uh, it sounds like that quickly shifted to understanding that there would be some liability attached to that as well. Yeah. I think, I think what we thought was and what everyone thinks is, you know, we had, we had achieved the American dream. We had no outside investors. We created a brand. We worked hard. We were middle-class kids from the Midwest. We weren't rich. No one gave us a whole bunch of money. And we assumed people would be happy for us. But when you disrupt a category with big players and they're spending a lot of money and you start taking their consumers, there's always going to be a reaction. It can be a good reaction or a bad reaction, but there's going to be a reaction. And you know, we had a lot of copycat products from, from our competitors emulating, looking like our products, nothing was taking the share away because the consumer, you know, once they're fixed on it and, and we hit that viral sensation, you know, our consumers, our friends, us became this, this urban myth of what the brand really was or what, you know, was in the product or what the product was. And that just continued to exacerbate Saturday Night Live did a three and a half minute skit on Four Loco, unsolicited. Crazy. Right. Never have they done that for a brand ever. So when those start, things started happening, it's just a snowball effect from consumers. The PR comes with that, but then you, you attract a different type of attention of people like, well, wait, what is this? Why, why? There has to be something different or bad going on about this. And listen, we had no lobbyists, no really no lawyers, no PR firm. You know, We have a young company of 30 people, and the brand is the fastest growing alcohol brand basically in the, in the biggest market in the world. So you guys are exploding. The orders are growing and growing. Saturday Night Live's doing like three minute skits about the product. But you guys have like whatever, 20 million cases or 25 million yes. cases of the stuff. Right. And uh, you were then told the to press pause, correct? There was some weaponization of some government entities. It wasn't the press pause. Um, you know, a lot of questions started to get answered. And we saw articles and questions popped up about the safety of mixing caffeine and alcohol. And so in our view, we had caffeine and alcohol had been around for since Irish coffee, right? That was yeah. that was the original caffeine and Good alcohol, point. right? And so for us, it's something that's widely consumed. People know it, you understand it. If you have a cappuccino after you have dinner, you know, there's there's similarities there. And so Jack and Coke has caffeine in it. And also you have to remember like we're, we were in one of the most highly regulated industries in the world. You can't just, you know, pop up and make alcohol in your bathroom, right? Like yeah. there's a lot of different levels of approval that needed to happen. And the government had a limit on the amount of caffeine that you could have, you know, per ounce. And so in our head, we assume that if there's, if there's limits, then it's legal. So don't ever make assumptions <laughs> is, <laughs> is, uh, is key number one. And so what happened was the FDA which doesn't regulate alcohol, it's a different agency, 
or FDA regulates food. They said caffeine is technically a food. And we believe that for loco is adulterated, which it may or may not be safe. And so doubt of cloud put a lot of fear into our distributors, into us, into our retailers, you know, into everybody. And so, you know, we voluntarily decided to take take it off the market. We realized that we had a big brand, we had a big company, and their brand was bigger than caffeine. It was a very, very hard decision. We had about $28 million of inventory that we had to destroy. No way. You had to destroy $28 million of inventory? We had just started making money. We had just become profitable. And we had to destroy $28 million of inventory. We had to then reproduce product that was same formula without caffeine and then redistribute out in the market. Now, when we decided to, to reformulate the product, I mean, consumers went crazy. People were selling the caffeinated product on eBay. People were buying hundreds of products. This is all over the news. Remember, this is like a dead news cycle too. So everybody from Bill Maher to Fox News to, I mean, we're like, can something happen in the country <laughs> to get us off the front page? Uh, because this is just, it's, it was every day something new. I would have reporters show up to my condo building in Chicago and tell my front door guy that they're a delivery person and come to my, open, I'd open my door and there'd be a, it was, it was pure chaos. But we learned a lot about ourselves in that time because it was just every day, wake up, how do we, we knew we had the consumer, we just had to get back to them. And the demand was, was insane. We got back in the market as quick as we could, which I think we got back to full distribution in about three months. You know, we couldn't really obviously pay back $28 million. So we had to, you know, we had to be creative and we thought we had finally made it through the darkness Then our bank kicked us out of the bank because they said they were a, a family bank. And we had our insurance company sue us saying that they didn't need to cover us because we had about 85 lawsuits filed against us from personal injury to class action lawsuit to you name it. I flipped and fell and it was because I drank a Four loco and you guys need to pay me a million dollars. I mean, it was the gamut, right? I learned, we, we had a crash course in, in business 101 in this, you know, in this time frame. So we had no insurance company, we had no bank, and we had to pay out $21 million in lawsuits. So as someone that had just finally made it and you, you, we got to smile for maybe about 30 seconds, Everything we made for the next four years went out the door, paying back inventory or paying down lawsuits. Oh so. my God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's not as romantic as uh, what, you know, I think people imagine the life of a high flying entrepreneur. Oh yeah. Trust me. I have some, I have a lot of, a lot of, gr- a lot of grace from that time, but, but listen, I wouldn't change it for anything. And totally. the, the learnings that I have, that we have, that my partner and Jeff and I have and how we run the business, we still own the business hundred percent. We have no outside investors. We get to do what we want. We love what we do every day. Um, and, we, and we're more thankful and appreciative of our business and our employees that stayed with us than we would have been had we just been you know, super successful from the jump. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. 
is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. And how did you make the transition to being a global company? Yeah. So, you know, as we talked about, the social media build was very positive on the brand and people loved it. And then the press, you know, as the caffeine issue developed, turned super negative. We were the punching bag. But what this did was, you know, America is looked at across the world. All this press, if I'm correct, our PR company at the time said we got about $400 million in PR value of press. And now you got to manage that goes globally. And so after all this happened, we started getting inquiries from all over the world of importers were like, we want for loco in our country. People are asking for it. And we're like, yeah, right. You got to understand where we started from, like Ohio State students, like you you never thought that you'd be selling product in Europe or in China or in South America. And so we started shipping product to Africa, China containers. They were airlifting product because the demand was so high to China. We started a business in Mexico with a young entrepreneur, you know, that is our partner down there. And it was the fastest growing product in Mexico and Central America. And still, we have still a big business there. And so you just, you know, you go back to your, what your core values are and you try to expand on those in other countries. And the thing about us and for loco, what it is, it's unapologetically American. And so what we found everyone, when they go to other countries are like, well, you're in China, maybe you should tweak and do like plum flavored, you know, and change this. And we're like, no, fuck that. Like, this is American. And that's what they want, right? Like they're dying for unapologetic American brands. And 
that's the the gap we fill. Uh, I never would have thought it. And when we go, when I get to travel these other countries, it's it's wild, man. It's wild to see people drinking a product that has so much of you in it and enjoying it and loving it. You know, even in places like Peru and Central and South America, where the price is really high, you see even see some of the consumers sharing it. And I can't tell you what it feels. I mean, you know, obviously, as you see people enjoy your brand as well, but it's it's just an amazing feeling. Well, especially now, like, cause like you, I started my company 12 years ago. And, you know, when I think about me now, I'm like, how did we do that? But I'm sure you had, you know, plenty of other, you know, moments where, you know, the, the universe was conspiring to get you to retire and put down the sword. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, one stands out. So when Four Local first started working, we had run out of money. Randomly, I got contacted by this guy via email that was an investment banker. And he's like, hey, love what you guys are doing. I'm going to raise you guys $5 million. And it was like, my prayers have been answered. We're going to get out of this. I mean, we were literally, like I said, opening credit cards, cash advancing to make payroll. So we go through this whole process with him. He creates this business plan. He's like, I got all these, these rich family offices. You know, They might write a check for $10 million or $5 million. So we're excited because we have no money left. We have, I think we had $13,000 left in the bank. That was it. And we had payroll coming up and some accounts payable that we had to make. And he said, listen, I'm going to go pitch this. The money should be to you within 30 days. He said, but it's customary for an upfront fee to get paid to me to offset some of my costs. And we were like, we can't, we, we don't have the money to pay him. Like, what should we do? But he's going to, he's going to raise us money. So we had a long, bitter conversation between internally and we weren't aligned, but we decided to wire him the money and we wired him $13,000 and we never heard from him again. And we're sitting here with $3,000 in the bank, credit cards all in our name, levered up every penny that we had in this thing. And we just didn't have a choice. You know, we had to make this happen and you will it. It, it truly is. I mean, look, a lot of other things happen, but if the owners don't have skin in the game and we had all of our skin in the game, no matter how good the brand of the company is, it's not going to work. Totally. Nothing like necessity to force you to innovate. Yes. You mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but this idea that there's like a direct correlation to between creativity and a lack of capital. You know, like yes. often our most creative solutions and ideas and branding campaigns come earlier on. And so I'm curious, what do you guys do to stay fresh and to stay sharp? I think first, one of the things that you learn early on, you, you shift from managing the business to managing people. And we didn't value the HR function very much in the beginning years. You know, we thought it was the soft skills, but I would say it's our most important thing today. And it's having the right people, but not only having the right people, but allowing these people to do their job and also challenge you. You know, I know a lot of CEOs that if they're in a room, they don't want to be challenged. And we, most of our great ideas haven't come from us. They've come from our frontline salespeople, our marketing interns, our social media coordinators, and if an idea is better than what we have, we run with it. Like we're, we're hundred percent, I can't say zero ego, but we try to be zero ego and we try to take those ideas and expand on it. Now, from a creativity perspective, I think I still, and, and Jeff, the same as we try to be out and do these, go to these stores that we used to be in to build the displays and see what's going on out there, because you have to actually have your eyes out there and talk to the consumer and really be there. We have you know, big spring break events. I go to them. Everyone's like, oh, you got to go to a spring break event. Sounds terrible. Like I'm not going for fun. I'm going to see how the consumer is interacting with products and what they're doing, what they're drinking, what they're wearing. So I can have eyes on those things. So when these ideas come, 
you know, to our desk that we're ready to execute on them. So I think as you become successful, you really have to, um, it's hard, you know, to sit up, to not sit up on your, your throne, but you have to throw the throne out the door. You got to stay relevant and you have to see if your eyes, you can't just get the creative information or research from a, from a report or, you know, a research study. Like you got to be out there seeing what your consumer is doing and how they're reacting to stuff. And it's, it's not easy and it's not always fun, but it's, it's the most important thing for me. Yeah. That's so thoughtful. You know, both that like transition from being a player to a coach and it sounds like it was something that you guys, you know, did, you know, do really well just based on how I hear you talking about it. That idea that like, you know, you're going to be able to infer what a market wants because you knew it once and we're really right once. It's called confirmation bias. You know, like a lot of our peers and I'm sure we do too. We all suffer from it, right? We're like, well, this worked and I'm clearly very good at this because it happened to be the case once. And so why wouldn't it still be the case? How has you know, your market changed? How has the consumer changed in the last 15 years? It's, it's changed a lot. I mean, technology, social media, more quicker access to information. People understand what's in the products now, right? They want to know what the ingredients are. They want to know, like consumers are way more woke. They're more informed, you know, most importantly. So I think, you know, staying on top of that is very important, but also just understanding from a consumer behavior perspective of, Trends used to last for years. They last for, for, for weeks or months now. I mean, if you think about a social media trend, it could be two days. And so being able to pivot and turn quickly is very, very important. And listen, we've you talk about the bias. I mean, when we had success with 4Loco, we thought, oh, anything we touch now is going to be gold. You know, we tried to get a non-alcoholic business, completely failed. We wasted a lot of money and time and effort. And, you know, it, it grounded us that we have to get back to what we know. And it's almost important as what you're not going to do as what you are going to do. Right. And we had to set that stage really clearly, like we're not going to do these things, no matter how like sexy or great they look like it's just not us. And we got to stay in a certain lane that makes sense for us. And the brands that we're going to support, create, partner with are really going to be brands where we're never going to sell a 95 point wine right? It's not, it's not in us, not in our DNA, but we're going to sell a canned Mm -hmm. wine, right? That is disruptive and brand focused and brand forward, right? Like that's more us. And we have to stay true to that and be very, very specific. We tried to extend for loco into an actual light beer, you know, just because we thought the name would extend anything. And we learned real quickly that there's, you know, what for loco is and what it means, what it stands for is very specific. And we have to stay within that DNA. It's like hard to really articulate how much this product was at the center of the zeitgeist. And it's just amazing that you guys then like redefined it as this like global category, like dominant product. And like, I love that you guys were like, you know, buddies from Ohio state and that you're like Midwest dudes and like didn't have venture capital and didn't have big investors or like, you know, rich uncle that like helped you do it. I think that, part of the reason why people root for those stories is because they're so rare. And, you know, I know that when it comes to opportunities for, you know, marginalized communities and people of color, it's really important to you and something that you think about in your investments and how you build. What are your thoughts on that now in 2020? Like, how do we pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, man? Like when, you know, it seems like there's so many barriers for us to, to build these things. Yeah. I mean, there's always been barriers. I think it's really just about, you know, giving opportunity and just being open. I mean, for me, 
building a company and understanding why you're building it and what you're building it and being able to give opportunities to everybody. Like we're an inclusive company and you'll find, and it wasn't even by design. We're one of a very diverse company across the board, left and right, up and down across the spectrum. And Jeff and I, you know, both believe in this ethos a hundred percent. And look, you know, a mixed kid from Minneapolis starting in the alcoholic beverage space and like, you know, growing a business like, does that, you know, does my life experiences design that probably internally? Do I want to see everybody succeed? Yes. Do I want to see everyone have an opportunity? Yes. The things that have happened this year have exacerbated that, you know, to the fullest extent under, under a microscope. When we looked inside as every company did two months ago, we we're pretty fucking proud of the company that we had. And there was a lot of companies that looked inside and said, "Oh shit, we, we're not doing well in this in this area, right?" And it was it was a very proud moment when we could step back and say, "How are we grading ourselves on on diversity? How are we grading ourselves on really being inclusive?" You know, we were we were very proud of where, where we were. Art of the hustle. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way, is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made this show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. 
So do not miss this special takeover on climbing in heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Not to transition totally off that topic, but you know, just just moving forward, I imagine that you know there's certain brands and categories that are ripe for spreading some of these messages. You know, some of the sort of economic inequities that are you know just endemic in our society. You guys have, you know, a number of other beverages, but it's not it's not exactly the place that people are trying to learn about this stuff, but that also means it's a place where they relax, you know, like this is a milieu that people are have their guards down. So, what are you learning in this moment about like the similarities or or dissimilarities between say left right or like I'm just curious if you have any like learnings that you've gleaned from your experiences? Yeah, I mean, look, like I said, I think a lot of companies, well, most of the the good companies, at least, you know, in the last couple of months, not only with COVID, but the social unrest and injustice that we've seen over the last couple of months, have looked internally and and how do we react? And and your employees look to you too for leadership and how are we going to be as a company? You know, we're not Ben and Jerry's, right? And we know that. And for us to get on a podium and 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 make that switch quickly would be uh, inauthentic. But I think if you look through our social media, it's a fine line, especially for a brand, because you're not trying to sell, but you don't want it to come off as you're selling. You just want to show support and be like, hey, we're here. We're with you. And our job really, as we talk about this, is to give people in that social media feed a little bit of a break of the craziness that's out there, right? You know, we took a break from Facebook. We took a break from Instagram. We took a break for a little while as, you know, all the news stories and information was coming out and and it was a tense time. We took a little break, but then we had an internal conversation and we're like, listen, we need to be out there, continue to do what we do because we are kind of that like comedic break and the brand really does stand for like unapologetically American and on a comedy piece. So as a company, you know, we're very, very serious about these issues, but as a brand, you have to walk a fine line of being what the brand is, but also showing that you support all these causes. Tell us, I mean, you, you, are you launching new products? Are you, do you have new product lines that you've rolled out this year? Yeah. You know, obviously, uh, if you drink alcohol, you know that seltzers are a very, very big category. So we have a product called Basic Seltzer, which um, is done exceptionally well. Um, consumers love these products. And then we have a, a tequila-based seltzer, which is called Mamitas, named after one of our favorite beaches um, near Playa del Carmen. So, you know, it's tequila and soda in a can, 5% alcohol by volume, uh, less than one gram of sugar, 90 calories. So we're starting to see that shift into, you know, better for healthier, you know, options, you know, for consumers. We launch probably two or three brands a year, some successful, some not successful, but these two are really taste great. I'm going to send you some, you'll love mamitas if you like tequila. And I didn't realize that you had that sort of like venture studio mentality for launching brands that some work and some don't. I recall it, you guys launched uh, shots. I just remember you guys doing your first commercial a couple of years ago on Viceland. Yeah. So we tried to, we tried to go a little against the grain with that one. We started on social media. We would never do traditional advertising, but then, you know, as we've been in the business 15 years, you saw all the budgets and all the money start to go to digital social. So we thought, let's just go back against the grain because the pricing, you know, for actual television ads were coming down and also vices like right up our alley from a consumer perspective. And it was just a fun little, little kind of exercise to see how 
you know, how it would play out. And it was really cool to actually shoot a commercial. <laughs> so, so yeah, the commercial was, the commercial was great, but I think from the product perspective, you know, you have to constantly be innovating, prototyping, iterating. And some of our stuff has been more partnerships. You know, we had a brand called Not Your Father's Root Beer a couple of years ago that uh, we started with a founder and, and eventually sold. And then some some good friends um, started a product called Babe with them and kind of helped them out. And, you know, they, they took the brand and were super successful and sold it to Dan Azra Bush. Like I said, I take probably three or four calls a week from entrepreneurs that are starting up. If I can help them, I will. And if it's interesting, you know, Jeff and I will talk about it. You know, we'll either partner with them or make an investment uh, like we did on an um, alcoholic kombucha company called Juneshine. You mentioned Babe. That was like with the Fat Jewish, correct? Yeah. So the Fat Jewish, yeah, yeah. With Josh, Josh and Doc and, and Tanner, our brothers that are part of that. And then Alex Frazan, there's four of them that started this brand. And, and someone told me that that was like the number one rosé in America or something like that. Yeah. The number one canned rosé. Yeah. So when they started, um, you know, we helped them kind of in the beginning with distribution. Obviously they're marketing, you know, geniuses. Uh, and having, you know, Josh, the fat Jewish out in front of it really helped and spoke the consumer. And then, you know, they kind of branched off and did their own company and then they sold it to Dan Heiser Bush, uh, actually about a year ago. Um, so mm-hmm. it was the fastest growing canned wine, um, and the number one canned rosé kind of in the country. Um, and again, they built all that on really on social media and, and, and like really interesting, um, experiential activations. When you talk about the brand values, it reminds me a bit of Barstool Sports. They have such a hugely passionate fan base. It's so definitive yes. of, of, a, of a, a segment of the market. And if they just completely change their voice, they'd lose the audience altogether. Lose it. And now, yes. you know, within the last month, you had uh, Dave Portnoy interviewing the president on yes. Barstool, which Crazy. is mind-blowing, right? So, mind-blowing, you know, it's right. like people want to talk shit on or like, you know, look over these things that don't have yeah. like the cultural cachet. But the reality is, yes. is that like, this is what the majority of people are participating in. No, I, I agree hundred percent. And I think interesting when you talk about the influencer that, you know, that partnership with, with, with those guys and the fat Jewish and, you know, it was definitely eye opening for us. And it taught me a lot, you know, about brands and influencers, uh, cause we've worked with influencers before, you know, just having someone with 10 million or 20 million followers post about your brand and, and say, that's it. it it's great. But like, they have to be part of the lifestyle. Like those guys started a company, right? And they put everything on the line, again, skin in the game. And, you know, they stopped everything they were doing to build a wine brand, right? But that's very different than a celebrity, you know, starting a tequila as a side hustle. Those are two different things. And I learned a lot from that partnership that, you know, if you're going to do these things and you want to amplify the message, the influencer, if you, if they have a big audience, they need to live the brand and it needs to be authentic. And they have to, they have to be fully in, grain that brand in their lifestyle. Well, Jason, dude, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on the show to tell us about, you know, your story and your philosophy. It's an incredible, incredible story, man. And, you know, like I really do admire the hustle and the commitment and the fact that you've been, you know, at it with your best buds and let's keep it going. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. And, uh, I hope to see you again, uh, when we get out of, uh, of, of COVID 2020. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks for being on. Thanks for listening. Art of the Hustle.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind-the-scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.